The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. So as we continue through the the book of Genesis, uh, I'll be reading in Genesis 37, verses 1 through 36. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors but when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him now Joseph had a dream and when he told it to his brothers they hated him even more he said to them hear this dream that I have dreamed Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field and behold my sheaf arose and stood upright And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at, <clears throat> excuse me, at Dothan. And they saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see that what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of the hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into the pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, And let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. 
and his brothers listened to him. Then the Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him up out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. May God bless the reading of his word. Thank you, Vic. Let's pray together. Father, every word that we find written in this passage really is a priceless treasure because ultimately it's your self-revelation. Thank you that we don't have to guess about who you are or how we can know you or how we can live in the realm of your blessing. Instead, you've already told us in your word. So help us, Father, to understand everything we need to understand and be changed in every way that we need to be changed through the power of your Holy Spirit today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, One of the most common ways in which children often complain to their parents is to say that something isn't fair, right? It's not fair that their sibling gets to enjoy a certain privilege that they don't get to enjoy. It's not fair that their friends get to you know, play a video game that they're not allowed to play. Or uh, maybe for a younger child, it's not fair that their sibling gets to eat off of the blue plastic plate while they themselves are stuck eating off of the green plastic plate. Um, And, of course, we all know the classic response that parents often have to this complaint that uh, something's not fair. We remind them that life isn't fair. And uh, there's a lot of truth in that statement. It's best for children to get used to the fact that things don't seem fair because as they grow into adulthood, they're going to discover that there are a lot of things in life that don't seem fair. And the fact is that there are a lot of what we might call inequities in this world. It's actually been a topic of frequent discussion in our society over the past several years, hasn't it? There seems to be a greater awareness than perhaps ever before of the inequities that exist in society. And to be clear, a lot of these things are genuine hardships that impact uh, people's lives in very significant ways. And we're not just talking about what color plates people are eating off of. Uh, We're talking about real issues that often involve real hardships. And I don't think there's really any debate over that. Of, Of course, there's a lot of disagreement about how to address those inequities, but pretty much everyone seems to acknowledge that they exist. However, the question I'd like to focus on this morning is one that I don't really hear a lot of discussion about, even though it seems to be a pretty important question. And that is this. How can we experience genuine and lasting contentment in a world of inequity? As we've said, inequity is an undeniable feature of the world 
we live in. It's a, a basic fact of life. Other people often have more wealth than we have, uh, perhaps greater intelligence or IQ than we have, uh, maybe more friends than we have. They often have nicer possessions than we have, or maybe get to go on more exotic vacations than we can afford to go on. Other people also seem to have greater opportunities at times for education and career advancement than we have. Perhaps they've also been raised in families that have offered them more stability and less chaos than the family in which we were raised. Once you start thinking about it, there's really no shortage of inequities that exist. And so how can we keep ourselves from harboring jealousy toward those who have more of something than we do and instead experience genuine and lasting contentment? That's the question we'll be addressing this morning as we look at Genesis 37. This chapter marks the beginning of a new section of the book of Genesis, a section that revolves around a man named Joseph. In the previous chapters, we've learned that Joseph is highly favored by his father, Jacob. Uh, Jacob had four wives, or to be more specific, two official wives and then two concubines. And Joseph is the firstborn son of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. And we'll see in this chapter just how favored Joseph is. Look at how the chapter begins in verses 1 and 2. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. That would be his, his slave wives, concubines. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. So it seems like Joseph is a bit of a tattletale, doesn't it? Uh, he brought a bad report of his brothers to their father. We're not told if this was a legitimate report or an exaggerated report. The only thing we know is that it was a bad report. Apparently, Joseph's brothers did something he found objectionable, so he went and told Jacob about it. And since Joseph was daddy's favorite... Uh, we can imagine that Jacob probably listened to what Joseph said. We then read in verses 3 and 4. Now, Israel, that is Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. So, Jacob takes a bad situation and makes it worse. Joseph's brothers probably already sensed that Joseph was their father's favorite, but now Jacob removes all doubt by giving him this robe of many colors. Not only was this a visible reminder to everyone of Joseph's favored status, it also likely communicated that Jacob intended to treat Joseph as his firstborn son. Now, technically, Reuben was the firstborn, but um, if you remember, if you've been with us the past several weeks and remember back to chapter 35, Reuben 
had the audacity to sleep with Bilhah, Jacob's concubine. So it seems very possible that the firstborn status, which would ordinarily belong to Reuben, was now up for grabs, and that by giving this fancy robe to Joseph, that Jacob was signaling uh, he would now have firstborn status, along with the double portion of the inheritance associated with that status. As a result, verse 4 says, Joseph's brothers hated him so much that they couldn't even have a peaceful conversation with him. The story then continues in verses 5 through 8. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. So here's a tip uh, for those of you who might be the, the favorite child of your parents. If you ever have a dream like the one Joseph had here, it's probably not the best idea in the world to share that with your siblings, <laughs> um, especially if they're already jealous of you. Like, what was Joseph thinking? I really don't know. I don't know if he was deliberately taunting his brothers or if he was somehow not fully aware of how this dream would come across to them. But either way, his brothers received the message loud and clear. Now, interestingly, this dream will come true in the subsequent chapters of Genesis. But for now, as verse 8 tells us, it just makes Joseph's brothers hate him even more. Uh, by the way, this is now the third time that the passage has stated that Joseph's brothers hate him, underscoring just how intense their hatred was. We then read about another dream in verses 9 through 11. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying, in mind. So again, if you're Joseph, this is probably not the best thing to share with your brothers. Uh, they already hate Joseph, and he's now giving them reason to hate him even more. And if you notice, this dream surpasses the first, in that it's now not just Joseph's brothers bowing down to him, but his parents bowing down to him as well. The subsequent verses then record how Joseph's brothers go to pasture their father's flocks uh, about 50 miles away, and Jacob gets a little worried about them while they're gone, so he sends Joseph out to go check on them. We then read in verses 18 through 20 that they, uh, Joseph's brothers, saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. 
They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. After that, uh, Reuben tries to save Joseph. Uh, Reuben, um, if you'll remember, was already on thin ice with his father due to that whole uh, sleeping with his father's concubine thing, and therefore can't afford to also be blamed for the death of his father's favorite son. And uh, that is probably what would have happened since Reuben was the oldest son, and because of that would be held accountable for whatever happened under his watch. So Reuben intervenes and convinces his brothers to just throw Joseph into a pit instead of killing him. The story then continues in verses 25 through 28. Then they sat down to eat. It's pretty callous of them. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. The rest of the chapter then records how Joseph's brothers return home and lie to their father Jacob and tell him that a fierce animal must have killed Joseph. They even present Joseph's robe dipped in goat's blood as supposed evidence that some kind of animal must have gotten. And by the way, the fact that Jacob's sons use goat's blood uh, to deceive him seems to allude back to uh, the time when Jacob himself had used goat skins to deceive his own father, Isaac, by pretending to be his brother Esau. Uh, if you remember back from Genesis 27, uh, Jacob had used goat skins to disguise himself as Esau in order to take his father's blessing. And now, here he is, being deceived by goat's blood. As they say, what goes around comes around. So the main idea of this chapter is that Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery because of their jealousy. Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery because of their jealousy. Uh, verse 11 even specifically states that they were jealous of him. They resent Joseph for his privileged status as their father's favorite. And the terrible thing that their jealousy led them to do, selling their own brother into slavery, is a striking picture of how ugly jealousy is and what dreadful consequences it can have, which applies just as much today as it ever has. Even if our jealousy of others never leads us to do to them what Joseph's brothers do to him in this chapter, the fact remains that jealousy still has a way of sabotaging our relationships 
sometimes even ruining our relationships permanently, and certainly making us miserable in the process and stealing our joy. And let's just acknowledge here that jealousy is an issue for us. It is an issue. You know, we've already observed how uh, young children are often jealous and express uh, their jealousy in rather obvious ways. Uh, That's why, as those of you who are parents know, if you, let's say, bring home some gifts for your children, well, you had better make sure that you get them all the same gift, right? Because if you don't, or even if you get them two different colors of the same gift, it's probably going to provoke someone to jealousy, right? If, if one child gets a, a red lollipop and their brother or sister gets a blue one, the child with the red lollipop is probably going to be jealous of the one with the blue lollipop, right? Whereas if you had just gotten them both red lollipops, everyone would have been happy, right? It seems like jealousy is just inherent. It's wired into the human heart. And make no mistake, it's not limited to children. Adults do virtually the same thing. When we notice that others are blessed in a way that we're not, it's not uncommon for us to resent them. Just to review a few of the things that can cause us to be jealous of other people, um, there's wealth, material possessions, Uh, Professional success or achievements, physical appearance, popularity or social status, a happy marriage, having children, having well-behaved children, (laughs) awards or recognition, friendships, freedom and flexibility to do what they want, parental approval, or even... This visibility in the church. That's right. It is possible for us to become jealous even when it comes to church-related things. You know, if someone else seems to have more, more visibility or uh, influence in the church than we do, it can sometimes tempt us to be jealous of that. So as you can see, just about anything can provoke us to jealousy. Any way in which someone has more of something than we do can cause us to resent them, even if that resentment is very subtle. And by the way, I do believe this is one of the pitfalls of social media. One of the ways social media can have a negative effect on us is when it leads us to constantly compare ourselves with other people and envy the things that they seem to be enjoying in picture after picture, and video after video, we see people who seem to look better than us or have more exciting lives than us or to be more successful than us, and we envy them, right? We become jealous. In addition to that, uh, as we think about our society as a whole and the strife and animosity that currently exist in our society, I believe a lot of it actually comes back to what we've been talking about, to people being jealous of others. You know, there's been a lot of talk in recent years about concepts like critical race theory and 
systemic racism, and other similar concepts. And uh, obviously, these are very complex concepts that we don't really have time to address at length. But I'd simply like to point out that a lot of these things, at their core, seem to be related, at least to some degree, to envy and jealousy in the human heart. Now, that's not to deny that racism and oppression are real things, and uh, things that can sometimes become embedded in societal systems and structures. I would think that Christians would be the first to admit that. I mean, we believe that we live in a fallen world and that people are sinful by nature. So, of course, people are going to oppress each other and treat each other unfairly. And whenever we see that kind of behavior, we need to unequivocally oppose it and seek to put a stop to it. However, I still believe it's true that a lot of the strife we see in our country right now is at least in part tied to jealousy. It seems that the leading proponents of critical race theory and other similar concepts are deliberately trying to stir up envy and jealousy within a certain segment of the population in order to accomplish a larger agenda. As a result, even though phrases like critical race theory and systemic racism are tossed around quite a bit, even on the popular level these days, it seems highly likely that in many cases, at least, they are just a thinly veiled expression of envy and jealousy. And uh, we have to understand that within the worldview of critical theory, there's no end to that conflict, right? There's no solution. According to that worldview, there will always be a bitter struggle between those who are oppressed and those who are oppressors. Today's oppressed will become tomorrow's oppressors, and so on and so forth. It's an endless cycle of supposed oppression thoroughly infused with envy and jealousy. And uh, that philosophy and the kinds of behaviors it often leads to are absolutely disastrous for a society. So my point in all of this is that just as jealousy can consume an individual, it can also consume an entire society, and tear that society apart. Thankfully, though, the gospel is able to bring healing to a society that is torn apart by jealousy and strife. You see, the gospel, at its core, is a message of love, specifically of God's love. For us, when we were thoroughly sinful and hopelessly condemned and deserving of nothing but eternal wrath, God had mercy on us. We, we just sang about it, right? The mercy of Christ is our only plea. God loved us so much that he sent his own son Jesus to come to this earth as a man, live a perfectly sinless life, And then die on 
the cross to pay for our sins. Jesus took our sins on himself and suffered the penalty in our place. And that, I would say, is the greatest expression of love that this world has ever known. Especially when you consider the fact that Jesus did this, not for his friends, but for his enemies. Jesus died for the very people who had defied him and lived in rebellion against him. Then three days later, Jesus resurrected from the dead so that he now stands ready to save everyone who will put their trust in him for rescue. That involves renouncing our sinful and selfish ways and instead putting all of our confidence in Jesus alone as our only hope of rescue from sin. And listen, this gospel message creates loving people. God works through this gospel message to change people from the inside out and to give them new hearts, hearts that are filled with the love of Christ. As Paul states in Romans 5, 5, speaking to those who are Christians, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So when God saves us, Paul says, he pours his love into our hearts. We also learn in 1 John 4, 19, that we love because he, that's God, first loved us. The reason we're able to love other people is because we've experienced God's love for us. When we embrace Jesus as our Savior and begin to comprehend the astonishing love that he demonstrated on the cross, it fundamentally changes the mentality with which we go through life and makes us want to love other people. And that's what a society that's being torn apart by jealousy and strife so desperately needs. That's what our society needs. The answer to the envy and jealousy and strife all around us is the gospel. Only the gospel can create the change in people's hearts that needs to happen. So that instead of thinking, how can I get what others have? We begin to think, how can I serve others and give to others and love others? So the gospel is a message of love that creates loving people who are more concerned about the welfare of others than they are about their own welfare. Guys, secularism can't produce that love. It can't produce that kind of person. Only the gospel can. The gospel is the only viable solution to a society that's consumed by strife. Our society will never know true harmony apart from the gospel. And as Christians, we have the confidence 
that one day we'll experience perfect love and harmony in heaven. We understand that even though the gospel has power to change people's hearts, there's still going to be a certain level of jealousy and strife in this world. However, it won't be like that in heaven. Heaven will be a place where perfect love and harmony are finally achieved. I think Jonathan Edwards describes it quite well in a sermon entitled, Heaven is a World of Love. According to Edwards, the reason this is the case is because heaven is the dwelling place of the God of love. Edwards writes that God is the fountain of love as the sun is the fountain of light. And therefore, the glorious presence of God in heaven fills heaven with love. As the sun placed in the midst of the hemisphere on a clear day fills the world with light. The Apostle John tells us that God is love. And therefore, seeing that God is an infinite being, it follows that he is an infinite fountain of love. Edwards then writes, There, in heaven, this glorious God is manifested and shines forth in full glory, in beams of love. Therefore, the fountain overflows in streams and rivers of love and delight, enough for all to drink at and to swim in, yea, so as to overflow the world, as it were, with a deluge of love. Not only that, Edwards goes on to describe how God's love is reflected in us. He describes how in heaven, we'll reflect God's love as the moon reflects the light of the sun. And here's what's truly amazing and most relevant for the subject of our discussion this morning. There won't be any jealousy among those who have less rewards in heaven toward those who have more rewards. Edwards writes, those who have a lower station in glory than others suffer no reduction of their own happiness by seeing others above them in glory. On the contrary, they rejoice in it. All that whole society rejoice in each other's happiness. How can that be the case? Edwards explains. Sincere and strong love is greatly gratified and delighted in the prosperity of the beloved. And if the love be perfect, the greater the prosperity of the beloved is, the more the lover is pleased and delighted. So that the superior prosperity of those who are higher in glory is so far from being any damp to the happiness of saints of lower degree that it is an addition to it or a part of it. In other words, those who enjoy less rewards in heaven won't envy or resent or be jealous of those who enjoy more rewards because everyone will love one another. And true love delights in the prosperity of the other. Similarly, Edwards goes on to explain that those who enjoy more rewards won't look down on those who have less because they'll have perfect love and therefore perfect humility. 
And friends, this should be not only our expectation for the future, but also our ambition for the here and now to the maximum extent possible. See, the church is designed to be what we might call an embassy of the future kingdom of God. In that, the church should give people a foretaste of heaven. So that should be our ambition to demonstrate God's love within this community of believers right here in a way that gives people a picture and a foretaste of the much greater love that will characterize heaven. So whenever we notice that others have been blessed in ways that we haven't, what does God call us to do? Rejoice with those who rejoice. That's what the Bible tells us, as you can see in Romans 12, 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Instead of being jealous of others or resenting them for the ways in which they've been blessed, rejoice with them in their blessing. That's what love looks like. For example, I've known godly women in the church who deeply desire to be mothers, but who haven't uh, been blessed in that way. And uh, Mother's Day, coming to church on Mother's Day can be a very difficult thing for them. Uh, In fact, I had one woman tell me this um, recently, how she usually doesn't attend church on Mother's Day, hasn't attended church in a while on Mother's Day because it's just so painful for her. However, for the first time in a while, she came to church this past Mother's Day. And not only did she come, but she came for the express purpose of celebrating the mothers of the church and rejoicing with them and actually went out of her way to be a blessing to those mothers in some very practical ways. That's just one example of how Jesus changes our hearts and enables us to live lives of love instead of lives of jealousy. So let me encourage you to pray that God would help you do that. Think about the ways in which you're tempted to be jealous of other people. And then ask God to help you love people and rejoice with them in their blessing instead of being jealous of them. And in order for us to have this kind of love and to avoid being jealous... It's necessary for us to have a deep and abiding contentment in Jesus. The Bible teaches us that Jesus is all satisfying. Listen to what Jesus says in John 7, 37 and 38. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Think about that. Jesus satisfies the thirsty soul. If anyone thirsts, he says, let him come to me and drink. 
goes on to say that when we believe in him, rivers of living water will flow out of our hearts. That means we'll have a joy and contentment in Jesus that fills our hearts to such an extent that it overflows out of us. Like, we won't need outside things to come into our hearts to to make us happy and content. We'll already have happiness and contentment within our hearts because of Jesus, and we'll have them in such great measure that they'll naturally flow out of us. So ask yourself, are you dependent on external circumstances to make you happy? Or do you have a joy and contentment in Jesus that transcends those circumstances? You know, at the beginning of the message, I asked how it's possible to experience genuine and lasting contentment in a world of inequity. As we said, inequity is an undeniable feature of the world we live in. As they say, life isn't fair. It wasn't fair for Joseph's brothers in Genesis 37. And it's not fair for us in many ways and in a certain manner of speaking either. So how can we keep ourselves from harboring jealousy toward those who have more than we do and instead experience lasting, genuine contentment? Only through Jesus and the joy and contentment found in him. Understand that until you have that joy and contentment, you're going to struggle with jealousy. If your own heart is empty, you're going to resent those whose hearts seem to be full. But when Jesus fills your heart with his love and joy and satisfaction and contentment, then you won't feel the desperate need to have what others have because you'll already be satisfied in Jesus. As Paul says in Philippians 4, 12 and 13, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Amen.